Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. We have a lot to talk about on today's show because we have as a guest Mary Olivio, who is the author of a whole lot of great science-related books, including his newest book, Brilliant Blunders, for which you may have seen him on The Daily Show last September, this past September, where uh, he was interviewed by John Stewart about this book. He's also written a bunch of mathematically oriented books including one of my favorites is God a Mathematician so we're gonna cover a lot of ground so hold on to your seats but I think you're gonna find this a lot of fun uh, first of all let's talk about math because the rise of modern science is really a story about the effectiveness of mathematics in describing and predicting the behavior of the physical world. That seems sort of strange in a way because why should the physical world follow the precise regular rules of mathematics? 2500 years ago Pythagoras we may recall set all his number. Now this guy is famous for inventing the Pythagorean theorem which by the way is the underlying principle for the GPS system uh, along with all sorts of other technologies according to Pythagoras the world was not only through and through intelligible or rational it is through and through mathematical this is an old concept and also a very new one just recently MIT professor Max Tegmark published a book called Our Mathematical Universe in which he argues that the, the universe is not just describable by mathematics it really is mathematics and then we move to this notion of brilliant blunders the title of Mario's newest book in which Mario makes the point that even the greatest scientists in history such as Einstein and Darwin made blunders which later, some of which proved to be brilliant after all. Welcome to the show, Mario. Thank you very much. I'd like to first talk about this question of mathematics and the universe before we talk a little bit about brilliant blunders. First of all, you face this question, I think, throughout a number of your books regarding whether mathematics itself is invented or discovered now what what does that mean so uh, there are two classes of thought or there have been you know in the history of mathematics there is one class of uh, people that think that uh, you know following Plato from the ancient Greeks that mathematics exists out there somewhere in some some mysterious world and we only discover its truths. The, the truths are all there, and you, we humans just discover those truths. Then there is a second class of people who say, no, 
mathematics really has no existence outside the human mind. Uh, humans invented mathematics, uh, invented everything that has to do with it. This has been a big debate um, over centuries, actually. And uh, I, I try to, you know, put in my humble few words about this in, in, in this book, Is God a Mathematician? Yeah, and I think that, that it, it, raises, it raises a question that I think uh, sort of permeates philosophy and even and science as well. It's one of those areas where these two fields of thought are almost overlapping because science itself uh, needs mathematics in order to describe the physical world. And I think it's a remarkable feature that we, that we often overlook how effective mathematics is in describing the physical world. And after making that statement, we then go to the philosophical question, which is how is that possible? How That's right. So it, it was Eugene Wigner, uh, a Nobel laureate in physics, that you know raised this, wrote this term. He wrote a, an article with this title, you know, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Uh, basically, he said that the fact that mathematics is just so effective in explaining the laws of nature, uh, he said it's a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. Um, Einstein himself also wondered about this. Uh, because indeed it is, you know, a wonder. I mean, consider, I mean, both possibilities. Suppose that mathematics is out there in its own world and so on. Well, that still does not explain why it's so effective in explaining the universe. Similarly, you know, if it's something that we invented, again, it's still not clear why something that we invented, you know, should be so effective in explaining everything we see around us. So, so this is really a big question. Right, right. And I, and I want to underscore something you said because I think it's important for the listener to understand this sort of choice we have here. Not that, not that there's a dichotomy. I don't, want, I don't want to get into a false dichotomy. No, absolutely right. there isn't, and I, I will say more about that. Right, right, because I know, that, I know that's something that you focused on. But the platonic forms uh, are, are essentially this, this idea this area out in outer space or or in the mind in the mind of god somewhere where plato thought that there was a perfect world of these ideal forms and it's 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 difficult really to uh, understand plato in our modern mindset sometimes but if you but if you envision a ideal world of forms and that's where plato thought mathematics resided and he thought that the physical concrete world were only sort of poor copies uh, of this ideal form. Now, the problem, of course, with Plato is, is, is as, Mar as I think you're, as, as you suggested, Mario, is how do these forms interact with the physical world? How, how That's do, right. How do you, how do you, how, how do they, it's, it's like dualism on a grand scale. How do you have right. an idea influence right. a material world? Right. And, 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 you know, since you, you have read my book, Is God a Mathematician, you know that um, the way I come down on this at the end is that I think that when we ask, you know, is mathematics invented or discovered, we in some sense pose the wrong question. Because that gives you the impression, uh, as you say, that 
it has to be this or the other, and there is no in-between. Right. When, in fact, what I think is that we, we humans do invent the concepts. I, you know, when we talk about a triangle, uh, we sort of take some, we abstract something that we see around us, and we, from that we define a concept that we call a mathematical triangle, let's say, right. or a mathematical straight line, and so on. And then we discover the relations among those concepts that we have uh, invented, and we call those relations, you know, mathematical theorems, like the, you mentioned the Pythagorean theorem and so on. I mean, so mathematics, to me, is a very complex uh, and intricate combination of inventions and discoveries. Broadly put, we invent the concepts, and then we discover the relations among them. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's really, to me, there's two levels of, of issues here. There's pure mathematics, which is a wonderful area, and you and your books, I would recommend any of Mariel's books on this topic. You go through so many fascinating features of numbers, for example, the golden ratio, and, and number theory, and statistics, and the knots. It's, it's extremely interesting. But then, but then the second level is mathematics application to the physical world. And, and let me let me say what I think is 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 really amazing to me here. I think it's it's a compound problem because on one hand, let's let's look at the laws of motion, and you know uh, Newton's law of motion for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, okay? Or or the law of gravity, the the speed of an accelerating of accelerating object. All these. You know, mathematics describes these things, but to me, it's not only the fact that mathematics describes the physical world, it's the constancy and the regularity of those descriptions. It's, it's not just, oh, mathematics work once, and isn't that cool? It's working today, it's work, and we, we expect it to work tomorrow, and we expect it to work throughout the entire universe. Right. There is also a distinction that I make in the book between what, what I call active uh, and passive effectiveness. Right. Uh, let me try to explain. Active, I mean when somebody sees certain phenomena and then they formulate a particular branch of mathematics that will help them describe that pheno phenomenon. For example, uh, Isaac Newton invented calculus, yes, or formulated calculus, if you like. Right. Now, he wanted to describe motion and forces and so on, and he discovered that he does not have the mathematical tools, the right mathematical tools. So he formulated new tools, the ones we call calculus today, and those turned out to be incredibly effective in describing those phenomena. Now, this in itself is astonishing because they described the phenomena with stupendous accuracy. Right. However, there is something that is even more surprising, and that is what I call the passive effectiveness, where mathematicians formulate entire branches of pure mathematics with absolutely no application whatsoever in mind. And then decades or sometimes centuries later, suddenly it is found that that particular branch of mathematics exactly fits to describe some natural phenomena. 
Yeah. And Einstein's general relativity is in, an example of that type of uh, of situation where he discovered that, you know, centuries before him, there was already mathematics that could help him formulate his theory of general relativity. Yeah, and it's something like that, I think, which leads credence to to your view that it's not strictly discovered and it's and it's not strictly a product of the human mind because that sort of shows that it's that uh we we may be it may be something in between or something beyond both of those because i think that's a i think that's a really good example and the other thing that comes to mind is that it seems to me and i don't know where this started and and you and i i'm sure you probably know this pretty well but it seems to me that modern physics and cosmology today is expecting the universe to follow mathematics it's it's the search for symmetries you know i mean it, it's like it's like if a theory isn't s- symmetrical well it can't be right there you know it, it, and where where did that come from i mean this whole issue of of looking for symmetries Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and, and Einstein was one of the first, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century to, you know, get this notion that symmetry comes first. And by symmetry, by the way, what we mean by symmetry are things that don't change. You, you make a certain operation and they don't change. For example, just to give a, a simple example, the laws of physics, as far as we can tell, don't change from one place to another in, in the universe. Uh, if it weren't for that, we would not be able to explain the universe, because, you know, if it every place there would be different laws, we would be, you know, have absolutely no idea how to make progress. Similarly, the laws of physics don't change depending on whether we measure directions with respect to north or south or however, you know, and so on. So there are these symmetries which are, you know, we uh, created mathematics to, to describe. But there is indeed a question, as you point out, as to why does the universe have those symmetries to begin with? Because if the universe didn't have those, you know, there would be nothing for us to describe mathematically. And to that, actually, you know, we don't really have an answer, you know, why those symmetries exist in the first place. Yeah. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Mario Livio, the author of the new book, Brilliant Blunders, as well as a number of books popularizing the mysteries of mathematics, including Is God a Mathematician? And I'd like to, I'd like to do a little segue here to, to something that I, I just read, uh, an excerpt from the, the book I mentioned, uh, Max Techmark, where... where there's really, to me, a, a conflict, an apparent conflict in, in science's search for symmetries and the whole world model of modern science. Because Tech, Techmark, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm pronouncing his name right, his last name right there, but, but he, he believes that, that there must be a multiverse and therefore, the reason why we could describe our universe by mathematics is because we live in the only mathematical, or one of the few mathematical universes of the multiverse. And the reason I raise that is because it, it's so peculiar that 
we are looking for symmetries or science is looking for symmetries at the same time science at least the heart at least a good number of them rule out a god or a mind from having any role in creation and i've always thought that that was a conflict okay and i'm not saying that that you need to be a, a, a biblical literalist to be a scientist. What I'm saying is that it seems like there's a little conflict there. And... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think, you know, I honestly don't think that there should be a conflict. I mean, I agree that at times it appears that there is a conflict, but I don't think that there should be a conflict in, in the following sense. You see, what we do as scientists is we try to find those laws that describe best everything we see and that can make predictions that we can then test, you know, directly to know whether our, our theories are correct. But what physics does not do, uh, by, by definition, in fact, is physics does not tell you why those laws are what they are, or why, for example, our universe has th those symmetries and, and so on. And there, there are several possibilities, and they depend, you know, a little bit on your upbringing, on your education, on what your beliefs are, and so on. So if, if you are, uh, uh, you know, somebody who is non-religious and so on, you would say, well, you know, the laws are what they are because they are what they are. And that's what it is. Or you can say, oh, well, there is a multiverse, uh, and all possible laws perhaps even exist in these different universes, and you happen to be in one, and the laws are what they are in your uh, part of this multiverse. Right. Or if you are a religious person, you could say, well, we find that the laws are, are certain laws, and it is some deity that is responsible for those particular laws. So if you frame the question in this way, then there no longer is a real conflict in the sense that people are still free to believe what they want, uh, and you know there need not be a conflict. Well, the yeah. conflict yeah. mostly arises when people try to enforce one point of view on the other. Yeah. Well, I think I think what's the important point here to me is that whether you start from the scientific standpoint or whether you start from the religious standpoint you end up in mystery because I'm not I've never been satisfied with the explanation that that therefore God is is responsible for the order in the universe because to me it's the exactly the same problem as as the platonic forms which is how did how did those how does this ideal world of forms interact with the physical world you have the same problem with god how did god interact with the physical world and that that is something that the uh, many scientists raise but if you start from the scientific standpoint and you rule out the the quote-unquote supernatural you still have this mystery which is how is it that the laws of mathematics works in this in describing the physical world and and it, so it to me it's a it's an overlap. We approach it from different standpoints, but the beauty of it is that we know that mathematics is effective in describing the physical world. And in fact, Mary, I think it's probably the case that we wouldn't be here if that wasn't true, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, I, I think that is true. I think that 
if 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 not for those symmetries um, that I mean, even before whether or not mathematics describe it, if if our world did not have those symmetries, if laws were to change from place to place, laws were to change every second, you know, and so on, probably complex beings like us could never, you know, have arisen in a universe like that, that would not have had those symmetries. Yes. So, so in that sense, we in some sense have to find our way uh, ourselves in, in a universe that possesses at least certain symmetries to it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's something that is that is over overlooked a lot. And sometimes when you when you leave the baggage at home, in other words, if the religious folks leave the the uh, the, the orthodox beliefs at home, and the and the scientists leave the their materialistic world model at home, there's a lot of common ground here with regard to appreciating the miracle of being in a world where mathematics works so well. Now, in, in, your, in your opinion, and it might, it might help, I know you alluded to it a little bit, but, but where do you come down? I mean, I know you gave the example of general relativity, but after, after your research, where do, where do you come down in this invented or discovered di uh, false dichotomy? Yeah. So, so the way I think about this is, 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 first of all, there is the question of invented, discovered, and then there, there is the question of the effectiveness of mathematics. So, on the question invented, discovered, I come down, uh, you know, in the middle, in the sense that I don't think it's either this or that. Basically, what I think is we abstract concepts from our experience. Uh, for example, things like, you know, the natural numbers, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. I, I think that the reason we are so good, the reason that, let's say, the ancient Babylonians started with uh, number theory and with geometry has to do with our perception system. We are very, very good at seeing what, what is a straight line and what deviates from a straight line. We're very, very good from our perception system to see where are the boundaries of objects? Where is one object where another object starts? And what is the background and so on? And I think that that has certainly led to the fact that we started, we humans, I mean, started with numbers and with geometry. Now, once we abstracted those things, we started actually discovering various relations among those. I mean, you know, once you have a particular right angle triangle, then you start discovering that it has certain properties to it, like, you know, the Pythagorean theorem and so on. And those things we had no control over. I mean, once right. the concept was invented, those relations are there. So those are really discoveries. So that's the part of the invention discovery. Now, there is another question which you know, you can ask me about later, which is, okay, but how does that then explain the effectiveness of mathematics in explaining the universe? That's a more difficult question, in my opinion. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that for a second. And I, I want to, I, I described the platonic forms a little bit uh, earlier, and with regard, but I, I want to highlight the opposite 
opinion for a minute, which is, which is that the mathematical um, effectiveness or, or, or the mathematical success in describing the universe is invented. And it's one of, one of my uh, sort of observations, Mario, about, about the modern culture and the, the, the scientists and the spiritualist folks is that a lot of people don't read Immanuel Kant and don't appreciate what he did or what his philosophy said. And, there's, and I think part of the problem is that it's a, his book, The Critique of Pure Reason, just sounds so intimidating. And it's, it's not an easy book to read. And in my opinion, there's only really one thing you need to know about that book. And that is that he held that the mind imposes a structure upon the physical world. Uh, it, that it, even though he was, he was in the middle a, a little bit too, but I would put him in the, uh, it, it's, it, he's beyond the invention. He's saying the mind itself needs to format the physical world in order to understand it. And to me, that is a powerful way to look at things. And and I'm not saying I I I do think that I would agree with you. I do think it's partly invented, partly discovered, but I do think there's a lot of truth in what Kant was saying because it. Yeah. Helped. So so let me put put what Kant said in somewhat simpler terms. Okay. You know that maybe people can understand a little bit better. I mean yeah. th- that phrase that you just used from Kant. Uh, let let me just say uh, you know some some words about this. Sure. L- let's suppose that. You know, you do this simple experiment where you put some pebbles into a jar. And, you know, you put first five pebbles and then you put seven pebbles. And you know that in order to find out how many pebbles you have in the jar, you use the simple arithmetic addition and you say five plus seven equals 12. But suppose that instead of putting those pebbles into the jar, you are now pouring water into that jar and you pour the water five times, and then you pour some more water seven times. Now, in this case, you're not going to use the natural numbers. You're not going to say that you have 12 waters in the jar, right? Right. You're going to use something completely different. You, you will use a concept of volume or weight of the water and so on. So at some level, you tailor the type of mathematics that you use to the type of phenomenon that you see when you have a feeling that the particular mathematics might work or not. So the effectiveness of mathematics is partly that. I mean, it's partly, you know, we using already some knowledge that we have from our experience to find out which mathematics can work or not. There is a second issue at at stake here, and that is what you might call natural selection, but I mean of ideas now, not of species in the sense that, you know, mathematicians can formulate many, many concepts. Uh, Many of those, but not all perhaps, are found to be very useful to explain the universe. Those get kept. The ones that are not useful for explaining the universe are never used to explain the universe. So, uh, you know, you, you tend to speak about the cases that work, not so much about the cases that don't work. So that another, is another thing that explains partly of the effectiveness. Now, even after all of this, however, I must say, 
even after you have this natural selection and you have this adaptability, if you like, and so on, it is still the case that we don't have a full answer to the question of the effectiveness of mathematics. Yeah, well, that leads that leads to the to the. I mean, have you ever answered the question, "Is God a mathematician?" I mean, it, where does what's your answer to that question? <laughs> well, I don't exactly know what that question. <laughs> what is the answer to the question? And also, yeah. you know, I I will admit that the. I, I borrowed the title from, from physicist James Jeans, who, who once said that, you know, he thought God was a mathematician because mathematics is so ex effective in explaining the universe. Um, so, you know, the answer is that I do not know the full answer to the effectiveness of mathematics in explaining the universe. I only have partial answers, like yeah. as I indicated, yeah. but I don't actually know why mathematics works so well. Um, in in explaining uh, the universe. Do you think uh, it? Go ahead. Yes. No, I was going to no, no, say. Go ahead. Do you think that we'll ever know why mathematics is so effective, or do you think it's just one of those things which, which which we just accept as sort of a given and carry on with our scientific study of the world? Well, you know, there are some people who are not so puzzled by this question. I mean, they they think that. Uh, given that the world possesses certain symmetries, uh, you know, we had to come up with certain mathematical formulations that will help us explain those symmetries, and, uh, you know, and that, that is it. Um, and it, it's possible that that is the case, but I still find it interesting. And there are now, you know, large, large, attempts uh, on the mathematics side to, um, uh, to put it in simple terms, to unify algebra and geometry. And uh, it is interesting that those efforts, in some sense, parallel our efforts to unify all the forces of nature and all the you know, theories of the large and the small in the universe and so on. So I think that there is something perhaps deeper in, in, in all that uh, than, than meets the eye. Yeah, I, I think one thing that that strikes me about this topic, it, and it, it might be the case in other areas of science, where the scientific investigation today is obviously more complex. The instruments that science has at its disposal, including the Hubble Telescope, the Large Hadron Collider, the, uh, the COBE, and, and the all the all the, the dark matter machines, all these things, but we wind up going back to those classic mysteries. We, I mentioned Pythagoras, uh, Newton. You know the mysteries of the the effectiveness of mathematics in describing the universe. And I I think that it is it's remarkable that we we are still sort of puzzled uh, and captivated by this question, which which may in fact be one of these eternal mysteries that we're never going to figure out. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Mario Livio, the author of uh, a number of books on mathematics, uh, including Is God a Mathematician? And the new book, uh, Brilliant Blunders, which I'd like to move to now, Mario, if that's okay, for a little bit. Uh, Please. Let, let me, let, first of all, um, in, in your book, you talk about the blunders that a lot of major scientists uh, have made. What led you to write 
a book about these blunders? So the idea was the following. You see, uh, there, uh, there were a number of motivations. One was uh, it's kind of comforting to know that even the you know, biggest luminaries in science have made some major blunders, and it's not just us you know, that make blunders all the time. But more importantly, uh, I, I wanted to correct this idea that progress in science is kind of a, you know, a direct march to the truth, uh, because nothing can be further from the truth. I mean, uh, really progress in science uh, is, is some sort of a zigzag path uh, that, that goes through many, many false starts. Many times you have to come back uh, to the point where you started and so on, and, and, and this is how progress is achieved. Uh, so, so this was, uh, you know, the main motivation for this. And I think that the, probably the most famous blunder, uh, which I'd like you to talk about a little bit, which, which is Einstein and his cosmological constant, because that particular blunder is, is becoming more and more front page or, or front cover uh, topic in the scientific literature with the, with the whole, uh, with, with dark energy. So, right. so why don't you, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about this blunder because it really, I think it underscores your point uh, that these, these leading scientists, including the luminaries from the past, Einstein, Darwin, and Linus Pauling, etc. These guys were human as well. <laughs> so, yes. so, so, why, uh, so, so what, what is, what was Einstein's blunder? Yeah, so, so this is a fascinating story, really. Um, when, when Einstein formulated his theory of general relativity, he wanted to apply it to the universe as a whole. But at the time, in 1917, he thought that everything in the universe was static, that nothing moves. There was no evidence that things on the large scale move. But this was puzzling to Einstein because, you know, he knew that gravity everything attracts everything else. So how can it not move? I mean, th such a universe should have collapsed on itself, really, under its own weight, if you like. So Einstein, in order to prevent his universe from collapsing, he added to his equations a term that was a repulsive force. You see, gravity is attracting. He added a repulsive force so that it would exactly balance gravity at every point, and leave everything static. And he was happy with that because he managed to do that by not violating his principles of general relativity, which was an achievement in itself. Then, in the late 1920s, it was discovered that our universe is in fact expanding. It's not static. So when Einstein heard the universe is expanding, he said, oh, wait a second. If the universe is expanding, I don't really need to balance everything at every point because all that attractive gravity will do is it will slow down the expansion. Yes, in the same way you take a ball, you throw up it up on Earth, the gravity of the Earth slows it down. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be in a precise equilibrium. So he, he regretted having put in that term. He took it out of his equations. And... Some people like to say that he called it his biggest blunder. I, I, I argue in the book that he maybe never used that term. But anyhow, he took it out of his equation. Then, as you point out, in 1998, 
we discovered to our surprise that the expansion of the universe is not slowing down. It's in fact speeding up. It's accelerating. And as far as we can tell, at least to date, the thing that is causing that acceleration to happen is precisely that term that Einstein took out of his equations. So in fact, had he not taken it out, he could have predicted that the expansion of our universe is accelerating. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah, that yeah that that is that is a it's that's one of the the greatest stories of of science. And I don't know uh, whether he considered it to be a a a blunder or not. But to me, one of the most amazing <laughs> facets of that story is is the fact that is two things that the fact that Einstein inserted that term into his equations and also it seems as if he was you know he was uh advancing this this need for symmetry <laughs> he 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 wanted to have everybody wanted wants to have a static universe or a or a universe in balance or a flat universe because we don't want the universe to collapse on itself right and we don't want it to 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 fly away to the heavens and so so it was it was something that you know i i relate that to the need for symmetry and it turns out that he was right but maybe for the wrong reason <laughs> it's pretty amazing um so in dark dark energy um it, you know it also uh, yeah, d- dark energy is really that term. I right, mean, you yeah. know, that term, I mean, you know, w- we call it a cosmological constant, right. but it represents at some level the energy of the vacuum. And a- as far as we can tell, uh, the dark energy that we observe is is that energy of the vacuum. But we don't know that for sure yet. Right, right. Well, I, I think that there is, this is, this is uh, considered... Uh, it, uh, from my reading, one of the great mysteries of modern cosmology right now, which is the value. Why? Why is the value, the cosmological constant, the the, uh, the the value that it is? Why does it have the value that it is? Because apparently, using quantum theory to measure the vacuum, that uh, vacuum energy should be a lot stronger. A whole lot That's stronger. Right. A whole yeah, lot stronger. If, if you take the most, yeah. If you if you take the most naive approach to what the value of that energy of the vacuum should be, uh, you find a value that is more than 120 orders of magnitude. And by that I mean, you know, 10 times, 10 times, 10 times, 10 times, 120 times uh, larger than the one we actually observe. And even if you include some other things into this, like supersymmetry and whatnot, you still have a value that is more than 50 orders of magnitude too large, and the question is again why that is. So we really don't know why uh, the dark energy has the value that it appears to have, uh, and that is one of the greatest challenges to modern physics. The the value this I'm not really I'm not really sure about this, but the value of the cosmological constant that Einstein inserted. Was, did it have the right number, the right uh, strength to explain the acceleration, or was it simply the, the concept that he had in mind? No, he, he did not, you know, he had no idea about acceleration right. and what he thought that the cosmological constant 
would be such that it would just precisely balance gravity. That's what he, right. he had. So it, it was really the concept, right. but he also wanted it to be consistent with his principles of general relativity, which were that the laws of nature should look the same uh, to every observer, whether this observer is at rest, uh, you know, accelerating on a rocket, sitting on a carousel or whatnot. Yeah, I, I would like, I, I want to, f- to elaborate for the listener a little bit this this cosmological constant conundrum because it's easy just to talk about it and not uh, really focus on how significant it is. There is something called quantum energy, which is the, the energy of the quantum field, and this is the, the, according to quantum theory, even empty space should have some energy. And when scientists calculate what that energy is in the universe, it turns out, uh, as Mariel said, to be a whole lot bigger, like 10 to the 100th power, if not more, than the actual energy, the actual repulsive energy that explains the accelerating universe. And, and so it's one of the, and I've read a couple books on this, uh, Mario, some folks like uh, Steven Weinberg, I believe, believe it's, it's like science's biggest problem right now. It's, it's, a, it's a big problem. It is one of the biggest pro- challenge that physics is, is facing right now, that is to explain the value of this, of this dark energy. Um, and this also led, uh, among other things, to this idea of the, uh, of the multiverse uh, that, you know, that maybe we are trying in vain to explain this value because this value is just um, a random variable and we have a huge ensemble of universes and the value happens to be what it is in our universe only because that is a value that would have allowed galaxies to form, stars to form, and life to form, and so on. And there is no explanation to it beyond that. Right. Right. And just, again, just just to uh, highlight this problem, and that is that the cosmological constant or this repulsive force has to be a certain value in order to not only explain the accelerating expansion of the universe, but also to explain the formation of galaxies and life itself. However, that value is, is, so, is so precise, it is not predicted by quantum um, field theory, and therefore it leads many folks, such as Steven Weinberg, and I think Lisa Randall is in that um, group, who believes that therefore um, this is one of the reasons that we need a multiverse. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Mary Olivio about uh, not only uh, the effectiveness of mathematics in explaining the universe, but also Brilliant Blunders, his new book. Now, Mario, the other, uh, another leading scientist in modern culture is, of course, Charles Darwin. And I understand that he made a blunder or two as well. Why don't you speak about one of the blunders that you, that you attribute to Darwin? Yeah, so Darwin, uh, of course, didn't know any genetics because nobody knew genetics at the time. So he adopted a theory of genetics that was available then, which would, uh, well, it wouldn't, we shouldn't call it genetics, uh, a theory of, of heredity that was, uh, you know, uh, 
prevalent at the time, and that was that the characteristics of the mother and the father get mixed in the offspring just in the way that you would mix paints. You know, you would take white and black and you would mix them completely together and they would form uh, gray and white and black would cease to exist. That in itself was not a blunder because, you know, Darwin didn't know any better. The blunder was that Darwin didn't understand that with this type of theory of heredity, natural selection could never have worked. <laughs> and let me try to, to explain this a little bit. Imagine that you have uh, you know, a population of a million butterflies, and the butterflies are all white. And there is one butterfly that is black, and suppose that black gives you a certain advantage from both in terms of strength, in terms of... Uh, uh, you know, having offspring and so on. According to Darwin's theory of natural selection, what should have happened over many, many generations is that the entire population should turn black. But here is what would have happened under this blending theory of heredity. The black butterfly would have mated with a white butterfly, and they would have produced a gray butterfly. The, then the gray butterfly would have mated with another white butterfly, and that would have produced a paler shade of gray butterfly, and so on, right. very quickly, black would be completely diluted out, and not only wouldn't the entire population turn black, but in fact, you would not even see black again in this population. Right. So with that theory, it could never have worked, and he did not understand that. Yeah, well, I think it's probably encouraging, as you, as you said in the beginning, that even the leading scientists of history have made mistakes. I think it, it I think it, it gives us all reason to hope that that the fact that we make our own mistakes it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that we will never achieve uh, success or accomplish anything. It's it's yeah, really... no, it's it's not just that. I, I want to emphasize that actually progress in science uh, mistakes are not only in, inevitable, they are almost essential to progress. Because, you see, what happens, you know, we all want to try to think what we call outside the box, right? right? Well, guess what? When you think outside the box, you often make mistakes. I mean, if you don't try to think outside the box, all progress that you're going to get is incremental. If you think outside the box, then more times than not, you're going to make a mistake. But occasionally, you can lead to a breakthrough. Uh, this is, for example, the entire concept on, on, on which the startup companies are based, right? right? Most of them fail, but, you know, the ones that succeed sometimes lead to major breakthroughs. And, and, and that's the idea. So we should avoid mistakes that are caused by sloppy thinking or careless thinking. Those, you know, absolutely we shouldn't do. But we should allow for, uh, you know, calculated risk-taking that can lead to actual discoveries uh, at the price that sometimes, you know, it would lead to a mistake. Well, I, th I think that that is extremely important because it takes a creative person to go outside of the box and to come up with something new and it takes courage as well because what what your what your study shows is that the the folks that made the major 
uh, steps in, go, in, in expanding the reach of science. They made their own mistakes, but they, but they took chances. They thought creatively. And those ideas or hypotheses were subjected to the scientific method, and some of them wind up, wound up working and some of them didn't. Uh, what's, an, what's another blunder uh, that you focus on in your, in your book, uh, Mario? So, so I, for example, I take Linus Pauling. In each, by the way, for each scientist that I discuss, uh, and you know, there are Darwin, Einstein, Linus Pauling, Lord Kelvin, and so on. Um, each one of them made more than one blunder, but right. I, I decided to concentrate on just one. Uh, so, in the case of Linus Pauling, for example, he suggested a completely wrong model for the structure of DNA. Right. Uh, his model. Instead of being a double helix, it was a triple helix. It was built inside out. It violated some basic rules of chemistry and so on, even though he was the greatest chemist of the world at the time and so on. However, Watson and Crick, that came up with the correct model for DNA, actually adopted precisely Pauling's methods in thinking about their model. Uh, and so, you know, even though his model turned out to be completely wrong, the general method that he adopted was the one that actually led to the breakthrough. Yeah, I, I guess that makes it, I guess that makes it a brilliant blunder. And That's right. <laughs> I, I distinguish brilliant blunders from sloppy blunders. Yeah, and, and, and Lord Kelvin, you know, is famous for a couple of things. First of all, he, he had the luck to be uh, given the title of Lord. Um, which which doesn't happen too much anymore. But you know, I I have uh, a memory of him being the one that thought that the that thought that the the task of science was over in the uh, what the nineteenth century. He thought that there was just some cleaning yeah. Up towards of the end of century, the nineteenth yeah. century, he thought that uh, all the major questions have been solved except two. And those two, which he pointed as if they were small problems, actually led to quantum mechanics and yeah. to general relativity. So yeah. uh, they weren't small problems, the ones that were left. Yeah. Yes. So, 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 where do you, so, so what do you think the, uh, the challenges of science are right now, Mario? You, you've, you've studied this field a lot. You've worked in it. You've written some of the, the uh, most best-selling books in the in this field, what what do you think are the main challenges of cosmology, astrophysics going forward? So, well, you know, cosmology and astrophysics, uh, I think the main challenges right now are remain. Um, you know, the nature of dark energy is, is one of them uh, that we mentioned. Uh, we still don't know precisely the nature of dark matter. Um, uh, this is matter that uh, does not emit any light, but we see its effects uh, from the, its gravitational force. And, you know, the overarching problem that we have still not managed to unify all the forces of nature. In particular, we have not managed to unify general relativity with quantum mechanics. We don't have a you know, a, a theory that explains everything together from the smallest scale to the largest scale. These are, I think, you know, the, 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 the major uh, problems that uh, 
cosmology and, and astrophysics is, is facing uh, right now. And, and they are all big problems. Now, on all of them, people are working. I mean, there are experiments that try to find the dark matter. Uh, there are observations that try to determine uh, more on the nature of dark energy. And there are lots of theorists that try to unify, you know, the theories of general relativity and quantum mechanics. But progress is uh, slow because these are very, very hard problems. Yeah, it's it's sort of like the, I, I think we've come full circle from 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 Lord Kelvin, uh where, where you know, as we said, where he thought that the work of science uh, was almost over, it seems like the more we we discover, the more we still need to learn. Uh, Mario, I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, again, uh, you could find out more about Mario. I think your website is Mario. It's l i v i o dot com. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah, MarioLivio.com. Yeah, yeah, and and again, for those who are looking for an approachable book on any of these topics, whether it's mathematics and the universe, or whether it's uh, dark matter, dark energy, and and Mero's new book, uh, A Brilliant Blunder, pick up one of his books because not only are they well written, but they are a learning experience. Uh, Mario, is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with before we close here? <laughs> no, I think, you know, this has been a pleasure to talk about these topics. I hope that uh, people appreciate the beauty of these topics. I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to, to really appreciate the type of hard questions and what we're dealing with. And, and, and I want to really emphasize that uh, the work of science and the work of mathematics is at the end of the day a part of human culture. Uh, it, is, it is no different, you know, from literature, the arts, and everything else. It is all, you know, it is amazing what we as humans have learned about our universe around us. I mean, we are today trying to answer questions that just a hundred years ago, nobody even knew how to ask. So I think that this is just astounding and I'm sure that it will continue to go on like this. Yeah, and uh, my, my last closing point is sort of echoing what Mariel said and what we've talked about on this show, which is that we, we should never think that science has all the answers or that the job of science uh, is over, that, it, that, again, the more we investigate the physical world from the smallest particles to the cosmos at large, we continue to encounter mysteries, uh, among those being the mysterious effectiveness in mathematics in describing our world. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Mariel, thank you, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.